So there's a husband and wife, and uh, they've been married for forever. I don't know how they haven't killed each other. Uh, she is just the worst. She's a battle axe, and he is not any better at all. And it's been decades of spitting and fighting and kicking and all kinds of problems for the two of them. Anyway, years and years go by their marriage, and finally they take their trip of the lifetime that they always wanted to go to. And they hop on a plane, and they go over to Israel. They wanted to do that. And they have a great time, and they see the sights, and everything's great. Towards the back end of the trip, um, sadly, she, um, the wife, she, she dies in bed. And the husband wakes up, and, you know, she's gone. And uh, the officials come in, and anyway, this gentleman walks up to the husband and says to him, well, you've got two choices. He says, uh, if you want, you can have her buried here in Israel. It'll cost you $100. He says, or the second choice is slightly more complicated and there's a lot to do. You have her brought back to the U.S. and, you know, there's paperwork and there's legalities and there's the body in the coffin and there's the air flight and there's all kinds of things. And it's, it's $20,000 to do that. He says, wow, give me, give me a minute. I need to think about that. So he comes back about a minute later and he says, I've made up my mind. I, I'd like to have her brought back to the United States. The guy's kind of surprised. He's like, are you Sure. $100, lots of people would love to be buried in the Holy Land, you know. He says, it's going to cost you $20,000. He says, yep, I thought about it. Rumor has it, there was a guy that was buried here years ago, and he rose from the dead. She's going home. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Easter, everybody. Welcome, it's great to be here, everyone online, everybody in Alma, and right here in Mount Pleasant. It's wonderful to be together, praise God. Church, Jesus is alive, amen? amen. Praise God, we're grateful for that. Our King, he's not on a cross anymore, and he's not stuck in a tomb, motionless, paralyzed, and that's not our God. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and today we're so glad to worship him. There's a silly little phrase that's been going around my house for the last year. I don't know where it came from. Maybe all the kids are saying this, or I don't know if it's just my kids, particularly my second born, he's 13. His little phrase is big brain. And the way he uses it is, if anyone says anything clever, he goes, oh, big brain. Or if he's like doing his homework and it's very hard, like, dad, this math is very big brain. You know, it's very big brain. Or if I say something clever, it's like, dad, that was very good job, which means he's probably never said it to me once. Uh, so that's his little phrase. And that's actually what I want us to do today. I want us to big brain. I want us to actually Sherlock Holmes investigation, figure something out in Christianity. And, and I want to ask you a whopping huge question. And it is a great question. Um, why should I believe Christianity? I mean, what a great question. Certainly worth considering at some stage in your life. Today, you may have genuine questions about all this Christian stuff. Here's the thing for me. I'm glad you have those questions. I think you should have questions. I think you should want to apply your mind to logical rationale, to empirical evidence. And that's actually what we're going to do today. We're going to go big brain on the claims of Christianity. Is it just based on fairy tales and legend and exaggerated stories that over the course of time got changed? Or is there anything to this whole thing that you could say, that's actual historical fact? I'd like to know the answer to that. Now, there are people in this room today who do not believe the Bible, don't accept the Bible, 
would not look at the Bible as something particularly authoritative over their life, like that doesn't, that doesn't direct me, that doesn't tell me what to do or what not to do, uh, and you have got serious questions and reservations. And yet, you know, as a church, and even for myself personally, I, I would be the very opposite. As a church, we, we would say that not only do we believe in the Bible, we believe it is inspired by God, it is inerrant, it is divine, it is the manual for our lives, and we appreciate it. Having said that, no matter where you're at on your consideration of this book right here, I would say that at a minimum that we could agree that it is a set of historical documents from the Old Testament through to the New Testament. At a minimum, I think you would find common ground to say that is what it is. It is a set of historical documents. In that light, if you were to take any historical documents about anything, even beyond the Bible, about anything in all of the fullness of history in all of the countries of the world, if you were to look at those manuscripts, what happens to those? They are explored and they are divided and they are scrutinized and the sort of this microscopic look that is taken to see the veracity of any historical claim. And there we find fundamental tools and accepted practiced standards that are applied to any historical document to ascertain, is it reliable? Did that thing really happen in history? Whatever it is, and can we actually know that that was an historical event or some historical personality that existed on the face of the earth? The standards that would be applied to the reality of Napoleon Bonaparte, Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great. What I want to do is I want to take those standards today and I want to align them and apply them to the claim of the resurrection in Christianity. Is Christianity trustworthy? So right now, I'm going to give you a framework. I'm going to give you four words, beginning with the letter E, why you should possibly believe Christianity. These come from an author by the name of Lee Strobel. The first one is the word execution. And what I'm talking about here is the question of, did Jesus really die on the cross? Did that execution actually take place, and did it actually work? Did he die? And to that I would say, there's actually not really any dispute among scholars. And I'm not even just talking about Christian scholars. I'm talking about the whole wide range of scholarship throughout the world. There is virtually no dispute amongst ancient historians that Jesus was dead, having been crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why? Because when we study ancient history, you are lucky if an event took place, and I'm talking about anything in history, if they can find one additional source, or maybe even two additional sources, to confirm and corroborate that something took place in history. Yet for the death of Jesus, we not only have multiple early first century accounts confirmed in the New Testament, we also have five ancient sources that are actually outside and removed from the Bible. So if you think the Bible is a biased book, we've got five sources corroborating and confirming the fact that Jesus actually died on the cross. Josephus, first century Jewish historian who worked for Rome. Tacitus, another early historian. Marabara uh, Seropian, first century Syrian philosopher. Lucian, the Jewish Talmud itself admits that Jesus was successfully executed. So for me, this is just an established, simple, historical fact. There was a man called Jesus Christ. He did exist. He came from a town called Nazareth, and he was killed in a Roman crucifix. 
In fact, you would get laughed out of any major academic institution if you were to come in and go, <clears throat> no, 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 that's not the case, that didn't happen. You just wouldn't get that. How's this for an authority? No less than the peer-reviewed scientific medical journal of the American Medical Associ Association. And unbelievably, they actually did research into the exact question that I'm asking right now. Precisely that question. Is there evidence for the death of Jesus? Was he successfully executed? Quote, Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead, even before the wound to his side was inflicted. In fact, we could go to an atheist New Testament scholar. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron. I know that. An atheist, but he is a New Testament scholar. There's a gentleman by the name of Gerd Ludemann formerly of Vanderbilt University, and this is his quote. He says, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Now, the fact that an expert, ancient historian, total skeptic, total atheist, like not going to be probably coming to a meeting like this, the fact that Gerd Ludman would say that his death is factual and indisputable uh, is heavyweight significant for us. That's our first E. Execution. Jesus was dead. The second E is the word early. Early. In broad terms, again, just looking at anything in history, if you're looking to examine to see the accuracy of any historical claim, there are two significant factors that you need to bear in mind. One is time, and the second is copies of manuscripts. Time and copies of manuscripts. Now, by time, I simply mean if there's a claim that any historical event took place, the sooner in time that you have a written account from the moment that it took place to that written account, the better. The less time, the better. If you find there are centuries and centuries and centuries, and then you bump into your first written account about something that happened way, way in the past, academia kind of frowns upon that. The second is copies of manuscripts. So the more separate copies of manuscripts that you can find corroborating and saying the same thing about the historical event, academia says, we really like that a lot. So to that, we have very, very early, I mean very early reports that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Reports that came very quickly after his death. Now why is it important? Because it explains away what I think most people immediately go to in their mind when you come to this impossible claim of a man was dead, but then he wasn't dead. Because no one else can do that. And it is this word, legend. And so often what you'll hear is this attack on this claim that a man was dead, but then he was alive, to simply say, it's the same as that game where the person comes up with a phrase, whispers it to a friend, whispers it to another friend, around and around it goes until it comes to the final person and they try to repeat the original message. And is it ever the same? No. Right? It's changed and we all have a great big laugh about that. That's surely what happened. One person told another who told another and the story got embellished and then the story got sensationalized and it became larger and it became tweaked and changed and dramatized. Anyone here ever go fishing? I once caught a fish this big. An hour later, I once caught a fish this big. A month later, it's the biggest fish you ever caught in your life. Is that what we're saying that took place with this claim? It's an impossible claim. And to that I would say, and this is so fascinating, we have preserved for us what is simply known as a creed. 
Now, a creed is a memorized statement of faith. It's very like that little kid at school puts his hand on his heart, puts her hand on her heart, and, and says the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And you can find a child at a very young age who's able to state that word for word. Why? Because they've said it every day going to school with everyone else. They can't change it. If they did, everyone would say, that's not the right words. These are the right words. We know the right words. And that's what a creed is. The creed contains the essence of Christianity, and we have one, an early, early creed. And here's what the creed says. It says that Jesus died, and it says why. It says he died for the forgiveness of sins. And then it says that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. And then it goes on further in the creed that would have been memorized word for word to name the specific names of people who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, who saw him after he was dead, he was alive. It even specifically names groups of people who saw him, not only including people who loved him and wanted him to be alive and longed for him to be alive, but people who were complete opponents and skeptics of Jesus as well. Now, what's most important about this creed, remember we're talking about the word early, is how immediately it was developed after the death of Jesus. So it takes time for legend and exaggeration and changes to the truth. It takes time for that to take away the core body of truth that is established, for that to be removed and for it to be replaced with something else. And yet we can date this creed incredibly early. How can we do that? Because there's a gentleman by the name of the Apostle Paul. And he actually wrote down this creed, word for word. So it's been preserved for us. He wrote it in a letter. And it's about 22 to maybe 25 years after the death of Jesus. He writes it in a letter that goes to a church in a town by the name of Corinth. And the context of the letter is that he's even suggesting that this creed he's giving of them, to them is of utmost importance, but that he's already given it to them in the past. So he's actually reminding them about something that he said in an earlier visit. So we can date the creed confidently within 20 years of the death of Jesus. So the question is, is that good or not? Is 20 years good? Like in academia, would that be good? Well, if I were to ask you, have you ever heard of the person from history, Alexander the Great? I doubt that we'd really get anybody here who would say, that person never existed, that person never did anything. It would just be common knowledge that it's a person in history who had a whole, whole bunch of conquest as a part of his life. Did you know this? That in academia, his existence and his, um, what he did in life would be considered incredibly reliable as a result of the first two earliest biographies of his life that we have, and they were written 400 years after his death. And yet we have this creed that, that states very specifically about 20 years. But actually, we can even go back earlier for this creed. Because we know the Apostle Paul, that wasn't all his always his name. Originally, his name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul hated Christians, and I mean hated them. He would look for them and find them, and he would drag them out of their homes, and he would persecute them and torture them and kill them. Hated Christianity and everything about it. 
It's very well documented. One to three years after the death of Jesus Christ, this persecutor, this skeptic and opponent of Jesus Christ was walking down the road on his way to a city by the name of Damascus, and he actually had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he gets to Damascus, and you'll never believe who he meets. He meets some apostles. And there he sits down with them. And they give him, in that moment, the creed. That is the very creed that he later gave to the church in Corinth that we have written in a manuscript. One scholar says it may have been three years later that he received the creed. Because three years later, Saul, having been in Damascus and met with apostles, actually travels to Jerusalem. And there he meets with more apostles. In fact, he meets with apostles who are unbelievably, they're actually named as eyewitnesses in the creed. And he sits down with them for a 15-day meeting. And the Greek word that's used here to describe this 15-day meeting is, it's an investigation. Big brain. Sherlock Holmes, that's what it is. He's sitting these guys down for 15 days, and they're sitting him down, and they want to know, what do you know? What did you see? What was your experience? What did you witness? What kinds of things did you experience and see and know about this risen Savior? They're checking each other out. Either way, it means somewhere between one to six years, this creed is already in existence. And therefore, the beliefs that make up this creed actually go all the way back to the cross itself. The point of all of this is, there's no massive time gap between the event of Jesus' resurrection and many years later that we have some sort of sensationalized myth fairy tale legend that was changed and tweaked to develop some crazy story that Jesus was risen from the dead. One of the greatest scholars in this area is James Dunn. This is what he says. This tradition, he's talking about the creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated as a creed, a tradition within months of the death of Jesus. Now that is historical gold. Historians, they just kind of drool over stuff like this. In fact, nowhere else do we see anywhere in history a legend developing that quickly that could possibly usurp and wipe out a core of historical truth and replace it with a lie. There's no evidence in history for anything like that anywhere. We have an execution. Jesus was dead. Early. We have early written manuscripts. Very early. That passed the test of academia and historicity for reliability. And dismissed the possibility of myth and legend. But that's not all we've got. And I like this word. Empty. Church, we have an empty tomb. Amen? Church, we have an empty tomb, amen? amen? This is really, really good news. The historical record tells us that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb that belonged to a man called Joseph of Arimathea. The Jewish council are aware of this. Rome is aware of this. The tomb is sealed. The tomb is guarded by professional soldiers who, if they mess up this job, will lose their lives. And yet the tomb is discovered empty on Easter morning. So how on earth did it get empty? How can we really know that it actually was empty that, early, that morning? 
And actually, there are many ways to answer that, but I'm just going to give you one answer because it's so unbelievably conclusive. You ready for this? Even the enemies of Jesus admitted that it was empty. That's a huge statement. How do we know this? Because when the disciples started to claim that Jesus was risen, the opponents of Jesus never, ever, ever said, rubbish, let's go to the tomb, let's crack open that stone, and let's go, and I'm going to show you his body. They never, ever said that. That's all they would have needed to say, and the onus would have been on the disciples to prove their claim. We know from sources both inside and outside of the Bible that when the disciples of Jesus started claiming that Jesus has risen, here's what the opponents of Jesus said. Uh, Well, we think the disciples took his body. That's what they said. What is that? That's a cover-up. Teacher, the dog ate my homework. That's what it is. They are implicitly agreeing that he's not in the tomb. When that student comes up to their teacher and says, the dog ate my homework, what they're saying is, teacher, there's no homework for sure. I'm just going to give you a seriously lame excuse to tell you why I don't have the homework. But it doesn't exist. And that's exactly what's taking place here. They're admitting that the tomb is empty. Both followers and opponents of Jesus both admit the tomb is empty. I don't think that's even the question of history. Really, I think everyone agrees that it was empty. The question now is, how did it get empty? Big brain. Let's take a look at the suspects. What about Rome? Well, I would suggest to you today that the Romans were not about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. In fact, they ordered his death. In fact, they carried out his death. In fact, they were guarding his death. The Jewish leaders of the day. There's no way they would have taken that body out of that tomb. Because they were bananas about their rules and regulations. And for them to touch a dead body would have made them ceremonially unclean. They wanted Jesus dead. They're the ones in the crowd who says, we'll take Barabbas, crucify Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. And that's where they wanted him to stay, in the tomb. Well, what about the disciples? The disciples were not about to steal the body. They were petrified. They didn't have a motive. To what end? They didn't have a means to do that. And they never had an opportunity. For Christ to have been the greatest con man that ever existed, for him to con his way through the resurrection, it actually would have been so simple for Jesus to do that. All he had to say was this, when he was alive. All he had to say was, followers, one day I will spiritually rise again. But he never said that. He made it much harder on himself. He said, I will bodily, physically rise from the dead. That is empirically falsifiable dictum. I think the best answer to that question is, Jesus physically rose from the dead. We have an execution. He was dead. Early. We have early, early manuscripts that passed all of academia's tests that reduce and dismiss the possibility of fable and myth and legend. And we have an empty tomb. 
Lastly, we have eyewitnesses. Not only did the tomb appear empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appeared alive in dozens of situations and instances to over 515 people, to skeptics, to doubters, during the day, in the middle of the night. People saw him. People physically touched him. People ate with him. Now, do you remember what we said earlier? This ancient, that in, you know, as you're studying history, if an event takes place in ancient history, you're lucky if you have one source to confirm, maybe two sources to confirm this fact. That's wonderful if you can do that. Well, we have no fewer of nine ancient sources inside and outside of the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. In the world of academia, that is simply known as an avalanche of historical data. This experience changed all of the disciples. Do you remember what happened to them after his death? They're petrified. They're hiding. They're done. Let's go back to fishing. Let's hide. It's our neck on the chopping block. We're going to be next. And yet history tells us a few weeks later, in the exact same city where Jesus had been executed, these once cowardly disciples are now proclaiming in front of everybody with boldness, you killed Jesus. He claimed to be the Son of God, and he backed that up by rising from the dead, and we're willing to proclaim that as truth to our deaths. We have six sources outside of the Bible to confirm that the disciples lived Sources, they, they lived lives that were marked with tremendous suffering and deprivation. Why? Because they claimed that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Why were they willing to do that? Who had told them such a thing? Did they see it on CNN? Did a buddy say it to them? Is it just something that they really, really, really wanted to believe because they really liked Jesus and he changed them and helped them? Or is it because they knew what a lie was and they knew what the truth was and it was simply the truth? So much so that they were willing to die for it. Again, think worst case scenario. Imagine if all of them were in on it together. Let's con the world. Let's trick planet Earth to believing that Jesus Christ is dead. We know he's not, but let's do that. For whatever reason, I don't even know why you would do that. And then they go and they spread and some of them never see each other again. And they go all out throughout the known world proclaiming this message that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Fox's book of martyrs tells us that every single one of the disciples, bar John, who died a prisoner on the island of Patmos, lost their lives as martyrs because of the claim that they said was true, that Jesus rose from the dead. Don't you think that if it were a con, that maybe one of them at one point... And the Fox's Book of Martyr tells us that they were hung, drawn, and quartered. They were beheaded. They were placed in boiling vats of oil. I mean, they were, it was horrific deaths. Don't you think that one of them, just as their head was about to be removed from their body, would have gone, ha, 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 just joking. I'm not going to lose my life over what I know to be a lie. No, you're only going to give your life for what you know to be true. And that's what they did. It should tell you something about the veracity of their claim. Church, we have an execution. He was dead. And in this moment, I want you to hear that 
beyond a mere fact and as something that is very loving towards you personally. We have an execution. We have early, early manuscripts and reports, academically reliable sources. We have an empty tomb with no human explanation as to why it would be empty. And we have 515 eyewitnesses. Imagine bringing them into court one at a time to testify about what they saw. And so the only last question that remains is, what's your verdict? Big brain. Christianity is not asking you to turn your brain off. In fact, quite the opposite. Not only does Christianity address your intellect, but it also addresses your heart. For what Christ did and the lengths that he went to, the trauma of his death, the power of his resurrection is deeply personal and it is directed towards you. To think that the context of everything that we're talking about is to this one aim so that you could have forgiveness of sins, so that you could have care and love and a savior and good standing with God, something that you need. Why would God do such a thing for a bunch of unworthy people like you and I? And I pray right now that your intellect is prodded I pray that this Easter, you feel more than obliged to consider this in a whole new way. I pray that right now that your heart is actually beating faster because it's this idea, it's this glimpse of an idea. Are you saying to me that not only could this be actually true, intelligently true, but then that therefore would mean that that was done on my behalf because God cares and loves for me. And you think about the story of our friend here and immediately what it conjures up is, but look at my mistakes and my sins and my shame and my regrets because I've got plenty of that. Are you telling me that God, knowing that about me, would go to that length because he loves me? This is the message of Easter. And to that I would simply say to you, Jesus is a far better savior than you are a sinner. Anyone here good at sinning? I'm pretty good at it. Jesus is a way better savior. So what's your verdict? In the light of this avalanche of evidence, for me personally, it would, be, it would take more faith for me to be an atheist than for me to embrace Christianity. And today I want to challenge you to follow him. I want to challenge you to do more than think and consider. I actually want to invite you to receive God. To actually receive him. John 1, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Do you remember the creed that we talked about a moment ago? I just want to read it to you. Listen to these ancient words. For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living and some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles and last of all, he appeared to me also. I want to invite you right now to follow him all the days of your life. And if you would do that, I want you to pray this prayer with me from your heart. God, 
for the first time in my life, I actually believe. I believe that you died and rose again. I believe that you did that for me. Today I believe you. I believe in what you did and I trust that what you did was on my behalf so that I could be your adopted child. So would you please, please forgive me of my sins and my regret and would you please come into my life. In this moment I commit to following you all the days of my life and into eternity. And the church together said, Amen. Church, our Savior is not on a cross and he's not on a tomb and the tomb is empty and he is alive. Can we welcome those into the family of God and give him praise and thanks? Let's stand up and let's worship together.